if you just go back and say, how do most humans, how, when is the time that they are the most productive in terms of their learning new things? It's when they're playing. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning, and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes, and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. Ima Carnegie was born in Hawaii to American parents and moved to Australia at the age of four. Over an extraordinary corporate career, she's worked at Procter & Gamble in marketing design for two decades, as the CEO of Google Australia from 2013 to 2016, and is now the group executive of digital banking at the ANZ, where she gets to deal with challenges such as fintech and an increasing political conversation about banking. We won't touch on the, uh, the politics or policy issues today, though, the reason I'm interested in talking with Miley is because she's one of the most interesting exe corporate executives in Australia, somebody who seems, at least from the outside, to have nailed the work-life balance thing, who seems to constantly have a smile on her face and who was recently named one of the coolest people in Australian tech. Miley, thanks for taking the time to join me on the Good Life podcast today. Very happy to be here. So you've had an interesting career, uh, going from uh, pharmaceuticals to technology to banking. What, what drives you? Well, I mean, I think more than anything, it's curiosity. And uh, I love learning new things. And so that's one. And the other one is innovation. And I, I mean, I just, I love change. I think, you know, that kind of probably comes with curiosity. And... So I was really blessed over 22 years at, at Procter & Gamble to help lead a lot of their innovation. And I kind of hit a point where I'm like, okay, it's time to learn something new and the coolest innovation happening in the world probably isn't in consumer goods anymore. So that's how I found my way to Google and, you know, have been drifting along ever since. <laughs> do you... Uh, th how far ahead do you plan in terms of your career? Because a lot of people sort of have this notion that you want to plan your career moves as you go. Uh, is that what happened to you? Or did you feel you sort of... Opportunities came up uh, more serendipitously? I vaguely have a sense that I, you know, that I want to get access to more and more interesting and difficult problems to solve. But, and, and, and the other thing is, it's important to me that I land in what I think is kind of fertile soil, meaning that there'll be a lot of different problems to solve. And if I do those well, there's a runway or a path for me to continue progressing. Um, but I, pretty much stay focused when I'm in a role on doing the best job I can, right? I was hired to do something and maybe it's just through 
blind, I don't know, just being ridiculous. But I'm like, if I do a great job, I will get rewarded for it. So I, so it's, I'm, I'm focused on the environment and this and the, and you know wanting to think that there's opportunities but i don't typically have a okay in five years ten years that's kind of not my thing and management must be a huge part of what you what you do now yep. how many people report to you at anz um that is a growing number so i basically right. came into a role that didn't exist and uh i'm kind of collecting uh people as i go if i do i mean i my guess is that when it's all kind of settled down, there'll be, it'll be in the thousands. Um, but I'm still, you know, <laughs> sorting it as I go. So, how do do you have a kind of philosophy of management that drives you? Um, I I a couple of things. I mean, I I try very hard to work on problems that I think are important and that I think are are meaningful, and. I understand that what I find important and what I find meaningful isn't going to be important and meaningful for everybody. But I do try very much to anchor, again, what I'm attracted to and what I do in those in those kind of two things. And I think the other one is where I can also grow, right, which is part of it. Uh, but it's really – it's important to me that I allow other people to find – what they're doing is important and meaningful. And I understand that my definition, their definition will be important, but I try and role model that that's kind of how I, how I kind of live my day, you know, and, and so I would hope that they have the same opportunity. And so if they're not working on something that they think is important and meaningful and going to let them grow, then we should have that conversation because that's a really – that's not a happy place. So, um, so that's probably – you know where I start where I kind of where I start from um, but again I the other the other side of that though is I I, I was kind of born into a family that I think has a, a, a pretty strong work ethic and my you know assumption is that I'm here to do a good job so I do expect probably quite a lot from myself and I put a lot into what I do and so you know and I, I probably I also not probably I do expect that from the people I work with. Do you have systematic ways of touching base with the people who directly report to you? Do you try and sort of schedule fortnightly catch-ups with people? I'm asking because I find this one of the toughest things in my job. I I manage uh, an order of magnitude fewer people than than you, two orders of magnitude fewer people than you. Uh, But I still find it difficult to, to be on top of what everyone's working on, to think about where their careers are going and to, to understand what what they're loving and what they're hating about the job. Uh, how do you, how do you keep on top of all of that with the people you need to manage? So I literally am pulling this together now. So again, if you say my I didn't ha- I didn't go into an established okay someone was doing this job before me. So I'm having mm. to to create the team and then create those those kind of systems and and habits. Uh, and I think the first thing is that I try and be very disciplined about it, right? So I will – and I, I literally came out of a meeting with my kind of direct team 
um, probably an hour ago where we talked about, okay, so how frequently are we going to have one-on-ones individually? How frequently is this team going to get together? Mm. How frequently and in what format will the broader or their direct reports? And so, so you know, it's just creating that 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 habit or that discipline in terms of defining it. Um, and so that's one thing is just is doing that. But specifically for my direct reports, you know, I schedule them every two weeks with the assumption that probably one in I don't know one in two one in three will get cancelled so Mm. at a minimum it'll be a monthly you know one-on-one catch-up um so that's yet one and the other one how long um it's usually an hour okay um the other thing is uh I am very transparent with any feedback I I get so I just got 360 degree feedback and from my team and I will literally I I I just sent them the link to the soft copy of the report, right? So I don't kind of fluff around and say, okay, this is what I think you're telling me. I literally send the entire report. Everyone can see it and we have a conversation around, okay, this is what I've heard from you guys. Okay, so and you know, so so then in terms of what they need from me, so there's a there is a hygiene for me in terms of making sure you have those those meetings clear, they're scheduled, everyone knows what that that um that kind of rhythm is going to be, but then there's the quality of those interactions, and um, I t- try and just be as transparent as possible. Just as I said, just send them all the. This is what you. This is what I've said. What do you? I mean, so yeah, it's just transparency in the meetings and just consistency, uh, and you know, and a, and a and a very clearly thought out plan. And how do you do negative feedback? Do you do that standard kind of sandwich thing? Here's a bit of good, something I like about you. Here's the problem. Here's something else I like about you. Uh, and and the and again, I will be very transparent again with people and say, okay, there is a very clear code for when I'm giving feedback, right? If I give you, you know, uh, you know, two pieces of positive feedback and one piece of like construct, I will always, first of all, I will always give you constructive feedback. I don't care if you're the best performing person in the world, you will always get constructive feedback because if I'm not giving it to you, then you're not going to get better and I'm not doing my job. But here's the code. If you get two pieces of positive feedback and one piece of negative feedback, that means you're doing really well. (laughs) If you get one piece of positive feedback and two pieces of negative feedback, then we've got a bigger thing to talk about. And if you only get really three pieces of negative feedback, then that's so... I mean, I will always try and be balanced. There's very rarely times when I give people, you know, just all negative. Um, but, I, you know, again, even that, I mean, I sound quite rigid and I, you know, I don't think I'm... But I do tend to have habits. And I think that actually came mm. out of P&G. P&G was a very, very disciplined organisation. This is Procter & Gamble. Yeah, Procter & Gamble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pro- yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you just got taught those habits. So, yeah. Uh, and uh, what what else do you think about as your kind of style? If other, someone from the outside was describing your management style, what yep. would they? Uh, how, how would they encapsulate it? Uh, the, well, they would uh, say that I am uh, very authentic, very transparent, uh, quite informal, um, but actually somewhat. Um, you know, quite quite in, informal, but I can I t- the the thing that, that that people struggle a little bit with me is when I am concerned about something, I will then get deeply analytical. So I go from being most of the time very quite informal 
to then if I'm like, okay, that doesn't make any sense, right, I will get into deeply analytical mode. But, but broadly speaking, I think the transparent and the authentic are the things that come up consistently. Do you have a view on what makes a good uh, workplace? I mean, I'm struck walking in here today. Yeah, yeah. We're looking out over beautiful yeah. views of Sydney. I'm sure we could see the harbour if yeah. we moved to the right corner of your office. Yeah. Uh, we've walked past a set of conference rooms which are named after various woods, teak, yeah. mahogany and the like. Uh, and I think about when I caught up with you at Google, which has uh, an LED disco floor. Uh, <laughs> yes. so, so what do you think makes a, a good physical workplace for people to be productive? I well, I have not had an office before I came to ANZ. I'd had not had an office for fifteen years. So, <laughs> so the the people who are listening to this won't be able to see my office. But let's just say that it's it's I'm a long way from Kansas, right? So, <laughs> long way from my open plan Google, and you know, even at Procter and Gamble, I was open plan. Um, so, and, and actually, for me, I that is my preferred style. So I think hmm. you know, for for me. Uh, just and having an, a physical environment that enables people to have unplanned kind of spontaneous interactions uh, is, I think, really Im- important. I mean, you need to get, obviously get the balance right between having enough spaces where people who do need silence and quiet to get work done, mm. that they, they have that. But my preference very much would be to, to enable some more spontaneous spontaneous interactions which I think is more of a kind of an open plan you know less formal environment but my recollection of the literature around open plan offices is that they tend to be disastrous for productivity and the New Yorker had a lovely little summary of the literature on this uh, last year which essentially says that every serious study that's been done suggests that we underestimate the potential to be distracted and overestimate the potential of a positive serendipitous engagement Um, their takeaway was that companies have open plan as a way of signalling to the rest of the world that we're a very open company but that that comes at a productivity cost but you've worked in both so what do you think so uh i actually think potentially it's it it depends on what work you're trying to get done okay so work that is highly routine with work where basically you have an existing formula like an existing heuristic and your job is to basically process through that existing heuristic and so therefore very little invention is required, Uh, I I think offices probably are better. Um, But being in... If you're in an environment where you're expected to challenge and change and you need to constantly move and adapt, I think that isolation means that you have less creativity mm. so so I actually think it's not it's 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 horses for courses um, and absolutely in a, in a Google environment where I mean that business model is just changing and shifting constantly I think you get enormous benefit from open plan but again I'm sure there are I'm sure there are workplaces you know maybe if you're in accounting or law or something where you are applying an existing framework which is unlikely to change. Mm then being in an office where you're not being distracted is probably better. I don't, you know, that would be my hypothesis. 
What about the role of play in workplaces? Uh, I mean, Google's famous for having pods. Uh, Japanese firms have their uh, have their nap rooms for uh, for serious downtime. Yeah. Uh, I was at Atlassian the other day, and uh, they have their Fridays in which people are encouraged to bring their dogs to work. Yep. Uh, do you think we ought to be bringing play more into our, our workplaces? So again, that works for me, right? And again, it's probably in challenge or environment specific but if you just go back and say how do most humans how when is the time that they are the most productive in terms of their learning new things it's when they're playing and you think about kids I mean that's how Mm. they learn they learn through through play and when you know, and, and, and if you look at the emergence of human-centred design or design thinking, anyone who's gone through one of those, you know, intense work, you know, workshops, and they're like 10 or 12 weeks long, where you cloister away a group and you're asking them to fundamentally create something new, a lot of what it looks like if you were just, a, you know, an alien observing them is they look like they're playing. Mm. And they have play. You have play breaks, and because again, it's just it is a a much more natural way for humans to learn. So, again, if you aren't trying to create something new, then bringing all of that in probably is a is a distraction. Similar to you know, it goes back to the open plan versus offices. But if you do need to create something new, then I think play is important. So does that hold for say a business like banking, where traditionally you've the, the traditional model is increasingly being challenged by the growth of fintech firms? So that so if you say traditionally, so if it probably didn't need it because mm. there was an existing business model, people knew what they were doing, and it was who is going to do a better job of executing that very well understood banking business model. Um, but now, absolutely, they're gonna we're gonna have to figure out how we create and we adapt and we're you know, agile and all those wonderful you know new words. Um, and so we are gonna have to bring more play in. And how do you manage the the press of meetings? I mean, in all of these senior roles, there must be more people who want to meet with you than you have time available. Uh, do you? schedule very short meetings are you ruthless about uh, uh, when to meet I remember Barack Obama was quoted once as saying that no White House meeting should take place unless there was a possibility that someone's mind might change as a result of the meeting do you have some rule about when when to have meetings and when not to in order just to stop them taking over your diary so my I, I basically will keep meetings to pretty much within I mean, it's not probably 8.30 to, to maximum 5. Um, and before and after that is off limits because that's uh, the morning for me, I'm a morning person and that's when I think. That's when I, you know, get myself organised, when I think. Um, and then, you know, uh, you know, after hours I'll, I'll do some reading and do some other stuff. But for me, like when I'm here, mostly I will be more productive through others. Right, so it hmm. makes sense to me that I'm going to be spending a lot of my time in in meetings. But the way that I try and make those, you know, productive is, you know, my team is now learning. Like we all have an hour meeting, but I will try and get through the agenda as quickly as possible. So if we can get it done in 20 minutes, it's a gift of time back to people. Right. Yep. So, you know, I think one of the things I find is very few people are disciplined to only 
have a meeting for as long as the gender requires versus I think what you find most people doing is filling the time. If mm. they've got an hour in the calendar, magically it takes an hour, right? But having the discipline to say, no, 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 we're going to actually just take as much. So that that's the way how I sneak little bits of, of pieces. And I, that happens quite frequently, I'd say at least once a day. Um, there'll be a meeting which is shorter than is, is scheduled. Um, but the other way I try and make my time productive is... I try, uh, you know, other than my one-on-ones and reg- some regular team meetings, I try and have as few, you know, every week kind of just standing meetings as possible. And then I will flex my time to focus on something I'm trying to learn or something I'm trying to do. So, right. and then my external meetings, and so pretty much my whole orientation, my whole filter will be, okay, I'm trying to solve this problem and the next kind of six weeks is about solving this problem. So who who has been trying to meet with me that I've been kind of, you know, saying, no, no, later, later, okay, now you're relevant, now I will meet with you because I'm trying to solve a particular problem. So that's one. The other kind of, though, habit I try and get into is, you know, particularly for some of the new capabilities like data, like design and and um, and, and some soft and particular areas in software, you know, hiring and recruiting is, is the entire game. That's that's what it is. So I try to have two meetings a week that are potential recruiting slash hiring meetings where I will meet with someone whose resume looks interesting, who's randomly reached out to me, or I'll meet with someone who might be able to connect me to a community but i try and have at least two of those a week so that's the other kind of habit i and how do you manage email uh, which seems to be the bane of so many of our existences yeah so um i joke and say badly um but i do a reasonably good job of, sta- of scanning my emails to know what broadly what's in there and and picking out and doing the stuff that's critical and then I will let it run and I will then get on a flight and my team will know, oh, no, Miley's on a long flight. And maybe that happens, you know, once every two weeks. Worst, it's bad if it, it can blow out to once a month. And I'll literally sit there and I will spend six hours and I will just just churn through it. And you know what? I will, in those you know six hours, find one or two things where I'm like, ooh, probably should have got to that earlier but in 99% of cases if i've missed something people will find a way of getting to me right so i don't so i'm not slavish to it at all uh, you know there before christmas you know i i actually booked off two days cuz i probably had a thousand unread emails and i'm just really comfortable i'm just i, I refuse to be a slave to it so so how many hours a day would you spend on email on email so again, it's, as I said, it's lumpy. So I would probably spend an hour, an hour and a half, maybe on email, uh, and but that's but then once every two weeks, I'll mm. spend you know a chunk of time. As I said, maybe it's five hours and just crush yep. it. Uh, but yeah, I try not to let it you know consume me. Do you have rules about smartphone use before bed? Do you try and uh, stop the device use uh, an hour or two before your head hits the pillow? So I um, I don't I typically don't take so I'll answer that question. But I tip things I don't take smartphones my phone with me typically to meetings. Um, I find that it's just a distraction for me. And if I'm going to go to a meeting, I need to I'm I'm there for a reason, or else I shouldn't turn up, Mm. right? 
so I try not to have it glued to my hip at all times um, because, again, I just am not – I'm just not disciplined enough to not look at it and start messing around with it. So that's one thing. The second thing is I, my, I charge my phone in the kitchen downstairs and my bedroom is upstairs and, you know, I will typically read or, you know, sometimes watch TV before I go to bed and I need my phone charged, right? So I just have that, that compensating mechanism that I have to leave it on charge downstairs and it just doesn't get into the bedroom. And how do you manage to travel? Uh, when, do you, when do you agree to, uh, to, to go? Do you feel you've kind of gotten the balance right of being on the road? You would have been on the road a lot at Procter & Gamble, I imagine. Yeah. So, yeah, I was... Um, I was, on, I was a lot in Procter & Gamble and I was also a lot of Google because I was in probably San Francisco, I was in the Valley probably every six to eight weeks and then I had other international, particularly trips in Asia on top of that um, and then a lot of corporate entertaining as well. So uh, I usually, um, so what I, what I do after my first six months in any new job, so I've just kind of hit that point here at ANZ, is I'll sit down with my, you know, my admin and I set a really clear KPI for them, which is their job is to help me only be away from my family no more than two nights a week. And, uh, you know, if I make choices where I knowingly am going to do more than that, then that's my fault. But if I'm making choices and agreeing to do things and then at the end – and I, I, it's every quarter. I look at it every quarter. And at the end of the quarter, I'm like, oh, my – how did this – you know, you didn't tell me. So it's a partnership, but their job is to help me have discipline over what I say no to and what I say yes to. And inevitably, I, the game I play with myself is I say no more than two nights a week. And so what that means is it ends up being 249 times a week right so I can look myself in the mirror and because I've rounded down to two um but you know I I just set that as you know uh, uh you know an objective and, and your boys Nicholas and Matthew are now teenagers yes uh, how do you do you find it difficult sometimes to switch off work in the evenings and switch on to them and their needs so yeah so they uh Nicholas is 17 and six foot five um, so is not a little boy anymore and Matthew is 14 um, and he's just starting his kind of growth spurt so we'll see how tall he ends up and I think for me the I'm having to start I've had to learn kind of new disciplines or new habits since they became teenagers because it was actually easier for me to switch off when they were little little because they were so obviously demanding mm. and you would you would get into the house and they'd be like mummy 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 and, and there was just such an obvious want to spend spend time with you that I actually found that easier than now because, you know, I convinced myself that they desperately want to spend time with me. They're just hiding it really well. But, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure that my sons know whether I'm there half the time. I mean, they're, you know, they're off, you know, um, anyway, they're, they're, they're like all teenagers. They're self, you know, self-sufficient. And so it's actually been harder because... I need to force myself. It's like, okay, you know, they don't necessarily, they're not desperate to try and spend time with me. So, uh, I, so that's one thing that I'm, you know, that is that I've had, I've, I've probably found there was a, a period of time where because they weren't wanting to spend time with me, I was on my phone and I was, and then you mm. start missing out. So I, I've, I've had to kind of learn to be more disciplined 
and uh, to, and so therefore to be available, even if you know they don't need me or want me there all the time. So that's one. I think the second thing, and my husband is much better than this than I am, is coming to terms with the fact that when they were little, you know, you could meld what they wanted to do to what you wanted to do. So I mm. love reading books, right? And I love doing puzzles with them and I love, you know, or going for walks with them. And when they were little, they would love to do all that stuff too. And, you know, so we would have a habit of every night we'd all get into, you know, into my bed and we'd read books together and, and it was this lovely quality time. And at some point, you know, they transition where they're not willing to come to you anymore. They don't, want to understandably curl up into bed with you and Six read. Six foot five, seven, <laughs> ten-year-old doesn't want to get in bed and read books yeah, with you. It's kind of strange. strange. I know, right? <laughs> they don't want to go for a walk. They don't want to They yes. want to do what they want to do. And um, and I'm not necessarily interested in what they want to do. Mm. Like, I'm not mm. interested in video games. I'm not interested in, you know. So, uh, so that's probably been a harder transition for me, which is how do you... How am I going to find the bridge to them mm. versus expecting that they will bridge back to, to me? Um, and as I said, my husband's um, doing a better job of it because he actually likes no, – he loves comic books. Like he loves X-Men and so he can talk about who's your favourite X-Men character and blah, blah, blah. Where I'm like, I've got no idea. He, you know, plays all the video games with them and um, – Anyway, so that's that's probably the the, the bigger challenge for me, mm. rather than being able to switch off or on. And how do you manage their technology? Uh, I mean, this is a challenge for me, but I know for just about every other parent I talk to, yeah. uh, that question of what rules you set around device use, you know, particularly tough, I guess, for a seventeen-year-old. But for yeah. me, with three under ten, yeah. uh, what what, uh, what what kind of rules do you think? Or have have you set with your with your kids around smartphones, games, those yeah. sorts of things? Yeah, it, as it's a, it's painful. It's it's because it's I my husband and I laugh about it. It's almost like the tide, right? It's you know you, you know we will steal ourselves, have a massive throwdown war with them, where you reestablish the rules and you know for a period of time everything's you know going the way it should, and then all of a sudden you turn your back and the tide starts to go, <laughs> and then you wake up one day and you're like, what the like, hang on, like, we're, you know, so it's just this, you know, this vigilance and mm. anyways, but, but some of the, st- of the, of the, of the rules we have with the kids is that, you know, realistically, they're going to be on social media, but we, it's, it's not, it can't be self-identifiable. So, you know, they, you know, we don't let them use their, their name. They don't, you know, they don't use, they take photos of themselves. We're happy for them to post things. So Matthew, my youngest, has a YouTube channel but it's not his name and it's not pictures or photos of himself. He mm. cuts other stuff. So so I think that's – and particularly with a lot of the bullying and cyberbullying that goes on. So that's that's a big one. Um, you know, we uh, we obviously – we limit how much time they can spend and we're screen agnostic. So I don't care which one – what screen it is other than their Kindle. Their Kindle, you know, they can – they can pretty much read as much as they want, but right. the the other screens, they you know, there's a list of things they need to do every day, and then after dinner, if they've done those, they get to be on their screens until dinner, until they go to bed, and that's probably an hour, maybe an mm-hmm. hour, and, you know, maybe an hour and a half every day. But for my 17 year old, it's getting less and less because he's got so much homework. Like one of the things is get through your homework, and he's got you know quite a full load. So we said that, but I think pro- one of the 
Important ones um, is uh, we don't let them take any screens other than their Kindle when we go on holidays. And, um, you know, that because that is such precious time and, you know, we, we have... We let them take it, you know, once. We just ended up... We were just fighting about it all the time, mm. right? One. And two, we didn't have quality time, as much quality time as, as we would like. So now it's like we just fight the battle once. So we have a massive, you know, tantrum as, as you know, <laughs> as only a 14 or 17-year-old can tantrum um, and all the, you know, for probably a day and a half leading up to the holiday and then they sulk for, you know, probably the first day of the holiday. <laughs> but then it's done, right? And yeah. it's just not a... A drama so you know there's some of the things we do and in terms of your own uh, sort of healthy well-being uh you're one of these people that doesn't eat breakfast <laughs> uh, i do not how long have you not been eating breakfast uh i haven't really i so first of all i love breakfast food like if there's only one type of food i if, if they said you can only eat breakfast lunch or dinner food me too best meal of the day i i would i love the i love eggs i love i mean so i, I love cereal so i love the food um but I've, you know, decided that, I mean, the research would support that, you know, being lighter is better than being, you know, heavier. Uh, and, you know, if, so if I had a choice between being slightly overweight or slightly underweight, I would choose to be slightly underweight. And I'm not saying that I get there, but that's, you know, uh, what, I, what I would err towards. Uh, and so it's just like, wh where is the easiest time for me to, to, save, to save calories, right? And it's really practical. And I... I'm not hungry in the morning. Like, I'm just not... I don't wake up hungry. So, I, if I'm not hungry in the morning, it's the easiest time for me to not consume calories. So, it's simple as that. And what exercise do you do? So, I'm transitioning at the moment. So, I used to always do... I just used to run, right? And uh, and I'm not... Sorry, run is a very aggressive description. I used to shuffle, right? So, I'd be, you know, middle-aged woman <laughs> shuffling along, right? Um, so, I used to shuffle and... Uh, but I need to do more resistance work now. So, I'm trying to figure that out. And the, I think the reason I used to run is because it was really frictionless. I mean, you can just take a pair of running shoes and, as you would know, and off, it could be anywhere in the world and off mm. you go. But the other thing for me is that it is relatively mindless, right? Um, meaning that I kind of get into a rhythm and so the mental health aspects of it were really important because I would start my, my run with massive problems and I would end my run with all those problems resolved and at peace. And yeah. the problem for me going, I, I know I need to do more resistance work, that's, that's going to be better for me. But you have to concentrate when you do it, right? Mm. And so I'm just like, how do I get the mental health aspect of the... I know, so I've got to figure that out. But I'm in that transition and I'm quite grumpy about it because I... <laughs> <laughs> and what about um, mentally? How Do you have meditation practices or are there other, other ways in which you deal with what must be an incredibly stressful environment but, but giving at least the appearance of being open and present and, mm. and available to people who want to talk, to, talk with you? I, I don't. I, so for me, I don't. I don't. So I don't have any any meditation. Um, the closest I get to meditation is is running. Um, so, so I, I I I don't. But the so the 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 times when I when I feel when when I am in a mentally unhealthy state, it is a combination of some version of not spending as, not, as much time with my husband or as my kids as I would, mm. I would like. I'm, I'm very blessed that I have married well and uh, 
I still adore my husband and we have wonderful conversations and I miss those conversations when we don't spend enough time together. So that's that's part of my mental health, as is spending time with my kids and feeling like I'm being the, the mother that I want to be. So that's a huge mm. part of it. But then the other one is... If you, the other root of all evil for me in terms of bad kind of mental health is um, is what I what I put in my mouth because there is so much corporate entertaining and so you know as I've gotten more senior you know it's much easier to be self-disciplined over things like how much you drink whether you eat you know chocolate and all that all that rubbish that's put in front of you. It's easier because it's not as offered. It's not in front of you as much, mm. or you know. Whereas, as you would know, as you get more senior, even like you get on a plane and they're offering you glasses of wine and offering, you know, the snacks are not good. Um, and if I allow myself to start, you know, drinking, you know, most, you know, many nights during the week, that's when I stop exercising. That's when my sleep goes bad. So, the root, pretty much, of all evil is either not enough time with my family or my husband or what I put in my mouth that's it and if I get those two things right then my ability to or you know the the resilience I have around making sure I'm exercising and particularly for me getting enough sleep and quality sleep that's where it all you know stems from and one of the things about being in that calm state presumably is that you can better deal with the invariable failures that uh, yeah. that happen in your team. Uh, yeah. Remember when we had uh, Google X head Astro Teller down yeah. to Canberra, he told this lovely story about uh, one of his teams at Google X that had started a project which had turned out through no fault of theirs to fail. Yeah. Uh, and he brought them all in, they were celebrated, they were applauded in front of everyone else and they were given bonuses. Yeah. Uh, how do you create environments in which uh, it's okay for people to, to fail? Yeah. So I've got to build that. So in so I was very, very lucky in, uh, you know, I went to Google for several reasons and one of them was I wanted to learn this, this new culture and what are the new methods of innovating because, you know, I think a lot of the older companies just don't, haven't, haven't adopted them or... They've grown up in a very different environment. And so it was fabulous to go to Google and see some of that in practice. See, okay, everyone says, oh, you know, you've got to learn how to fail fast. You've got to learn how to, you know, celebrate, blah, blah, blah. But you actually sit there and actually live through it was an incredible gift um, for me and one that I am needing to figure out how I actually Hmm. make that appropriate within a banking environment right because just saying okay i'm going to pick up everything that worked at google and bring it to to the to anz will fail right Right. so it's got to be appropriate and i'm trying to figure that out but um but but for me the the the, i i'm relatively self-controlled in terms of my reactions to in general to particularly to to failure the but I have learnt through my career what my trigger points are. I know when it is, what are the, what are the situations when I'm going to be uh, not at my best, shall we say, and I just try and proactively manage those. So, for example, um, if I'm in a large meeting and, you know, this used to happen, you know, in a previous role where I'd been in a large meeting and the person who used to provide all the information to get me ready for that would provide me all the information 
then would shuffle in late to the meeting with and inevitably with some bad, you know, a bomb. And so just figuring out, okay, in that situation, first of all, I I started the meetings, I didn't tell them this, I just started the meetings ten minutes later, right? And and they knew that I was I they needed to share with me whatever the bomb was outside of the meeting room so I could kind of compose myself so that when I came in I could be hmm. measured and so um, so I you know I think you just have to learn that what are your kind of your trigger points and then figure out how to manage them. <laughs> but my kids are learning new trigger points you know every day so you know <laughs> they're very good at that they are they? very good at that uh, well, let me wrap up with a couple of, uh, sort of questions I ask all of my interviewees. Um, what advice would you give to your teenage self? I would encourage me to have the courage to learn and be open to learning probably earlier than I, I came to on my own, meaning that I think uh, it, took me, it took me longer than it should have to actually have the self-confidence to open myself up to say, I don't know, I don't understand and actually demonstrate my lack of knowledge or being willing to expose my lack of knowledge. And uh, and when I, when I got to that point in my life or, and in particularly in my career, I mean, the acceleration point from there was just much steeper. And um, so I just think if I could have encouraged my teenage self to, to actually, you know, adopt that earlier, then I think that would have been better. Yes, I was so, impre- so struck in the early days of studying at Harvard to see senior professors often being the ones that would ask the most stupid questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it re- I realised that... Uh, for junior faculty and PhD students, we wanted to ask a really smart question, yeah. but often, you know, it was just a kind of uh, that term doesn't make sense to me. Uh, clarified things for everybody, but only the people with the, se- the greatest self-confidence in the room were willing to ask that. Yeah. Um, what's something you used to believe but no longer do? Um, I used to believe that I could compartmentalise my work and my life. I was. I, I actually never really believed or worried about um, not work-life balance, but I was always happy to do work at home mm. and happy when I needed to do to do home stuff at work. But I have come to terms that both for me as an individual leader, but also um, I think just very pragmatically now, your ability to try and say that my work and 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 my personal life are completely separate is just doesn't I just don't believe that you can mm. be effective mm. anymore I mean the fact that so much of of us particularly as you get more senior is public um, you know unless there's a high degree of congruency between what you say you believe in at work and what you actually do outside of work I think people can smell whether you're authentic or not and so I think that compartmentalizing I've just I just don't believe is, well, for me at least, is not effective. Interesting. When are you most happy? I'm most, uh, I'm most emotionally happy when I think like most people I'm probably surrounded by my family. So I'm still very uh, blessed that my parents are still alive. I've got a fantastic sister with a wonderful husband and two 
two sons and I've obviously got my wonderful family and at least once a month we all get together on a Sunday and have dinner and um, so you know time with my husband and my family but then time with that extended family is obviously when I'm well not obviously but I think for a lot of people that's when I'm really emotionally happy I think intellectually I'm most happy when I've found a really really difficult puzzle like a problem that I don't know how to solve and you know when you hit that point where all of a sudden you know, you've slaved away and you've kind of been slogging through something and you're like, okay, I just, I still don't know how to solve this and it's bothering you and then all of a sudden you see this glimmer and the clouds start parting and you don't know the answer but you know you're going to be able to solve it. Hmm. That is when I'm my most intellectually (laughs) happy. That's a great description. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Stay off the uh, refined sugars and alcohol. As are much you, as I can. Are you a no-sugar person? No. But you're cutting sugar out of your diet. I'm try- I mean, I actively am trying to just reduce it, um, you know, and, you know, yeah, just, re- you know, even so even, you know, at corporate things and, and stuff, I mean, mm. you don't want to, you know, just not drinking, you know, trying to, you know, I'm now struck saying to, to you know, I, don't, I mean, I'm not, I'm not vegan, I'm not, I don't have any, you know, food intolerances, I'm just like, do not give me dessert. Just give me fruit or or nothing. But just I need to stay off that stuff. Mm. Do you have any guilty pleasures? I have way too many guilty pleasures. <laughs> <laughs> so, so a lovely glass of Pinot or a Chardonnay would be one. Um, you know, I know it's it's not cool because everyone's a foodie. But I love white chocolate. I know it's not even chocolate, right? But I love white chocolate. Um I love travel, so I love you know I, I enjoy that. Um, but yeah, no, I've got way too many. What's your favourite country to travel to? Oh my goodness, that is a hard question. So, my favourite city, um, and it's un- you know before kind of a lot of the stuff that's happened more recently is I love Istanbul. I love so I love history. I, I studied a lot of history at school, and. So I love it. Um, and just the history and the food and everything I love, Istanbul. Um, but probably our favourite, the best family holiday we had was probably to South America. Um, so, yeah, but I love travelling. I've always wanted to uh, follow Byron and swimming the Hellespont, mm. um, but for the fact that uh, it is now a fairly filthy river. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I love the, um, you know, Hero and Leander story and then yeah. Byron doing it in, yeah. uh, in, 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 in homage. Yes. Um, and it seems, you know, it's a goodly swim, sort of three yeah. to five kilometres, yeah. I think, if you do it, do it right. I always, yeah. always wanted to do it, but yeah. I can't, uh, can't figure out a way of doing it without getting hideously sick. Well, Link, um, my, my eldest loves um, biology and genetics and evolution and all that stuff. And so one of the best, you know, places we went to was the Galapagos and just, you know, oh, wow. oh it was just extraordinary, so... And finally, what experience or person has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? It would undoubtedly be my husband. Um, He is a ferociously intelligent man um, and thinks very deeply on, on subjects and those subjects include a lot of ethical, you know, ethical um, areas and so we have fabulous conversations and he is one of these these people who has such an incredibly strong, you know, north comfort like just in terms of his own sense of 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 morality and and living ethically and 
I think like everything, having someone by your side, you know, through life who is like that is just a wonderful constant either reminder or just, you know, example to have. So it would definitely be be my husband and including having wonderful conversations about, you know, how ethics is evolving and what and also so we have it's his so it would definitely be him. Right. Well, Mother Carnegie, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to uh, speak about ethics and management and life and just having fun on the Good Life podcast today. Well, lovely to be here. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We're always trying to grow the audience for the podcast. So if you enjoyed it, can you do me a favour and let a friend know? Next week, I'll be back with Justin Wolfers and the economics of love, family and work.